Well, good morning, VRVC. So great to have you here and those who are joining us online as well. Let me give you my belated uh, Happy New Year's greeting. Uh, it's so great to, to start this new year with you. Uh, sad to have missed the world premiere of Caleb Wade preaching last week but, at VRBC, but uh, I heard fantastic things about that as we are pointing toward the goal that Christ calls us to. And so I am excited to start this two-week series on the book of Titus. And just to give you a bit of introduction, I want to ask you a question. Uh, how does this assignment strike you? Let's say that your buddy Paul plants a series of churches and, uh, and, and, and some of these churches are in one of the most challenging environments you can imagine planting a church, the Greek island of Crete. And these brand new churches are surrounded by a very corrupt culture. Uh, and, and so Paul, the church planner who planted these churches, says to you, hey, Titus, old buddy, need a favor. Uh, I left a lot of unfinished business back on the island of Crete, and that little church needs so much. They need healthy teaching. They need healthy leaders. And I'm going to send you to Crete to straighten everything out. How would you feel about that? Would you be up for the adventure? Well, I'm not sure I would be up for it, uh, but that's what uh, Paul kind of recruited Titus to do. And the one thing that I think that, that if I were to agree to it would encourage me is the way in which Paul encouraged Titus. He says, you know, this is a tough assignment, but guess what? You have a secret weapon. You have the gospel. You have the good news of grace. As we start off this new year, we have a secret weapon as well. We have the grace of Jesus Christ. And so that grace brings a power to heal what is broken in us, what is broken in our, our churches, what is broken in our culture. And today, we want to look at uh, one facet of this grace primarily. And it's an underappreciated role of the gift of grace that Christ gives us. And that is grace can actually teach us how to live. And so with that in mind, I want to start kind of in the middle of the letter, uh, or Titus chapter 2, and I want to uh, begin reading in verse 11. So please hear the word of the Lord. Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things that you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. May God bless the reading of his word. <clears throat> so this letter of Titus is one of a handful of letters that Paul wrote to individuals. And uh, this particular individual, Titus, is an interesting case. He is a, a protege of, of Paul. He's likely older than uh, Timothy, who we've met before. Uh, but he is kind of unique uh, because he is not a Jewish Christian as were so many of the leaders in the early church. He was a Greek-speaking Gentile uh, believer. And Paul's affection for Titus is so obvious. In fact, in verse, uh, or at the beginning of, of, of the letter of Titus, uh, Paul calls him my true son 
in our common faith. I love that. My true son. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul thanks God that, that Titus has this God-given heart for the Corinthian church, just as Paul does. Uh, Paul and Barnabas even took Titus on a mission trip to J- Jerusalem to uh, kind of deliver a care package and, and mission offering for that church that was struggling. And so I want us to just agree up front, Titus is a good dude, okay? Uh, he, he's, a, he's a good guy, and because Paul's trust in him is so high, Paul chooses him for this very difficult assignment. Uh, and in fact, as I see it, it's almost like Titus is a member of God's special forces. Uh, only he's not conducting a military operation, he's conducting a, a spiritual operation. And so it's almost like Titus is sort of parachuting in to the island of Crete, and he's going to bring leadership to this young church that's uh, in disarray. In fact, some scholars think the church was barely a year old. And like uh, happened with a lot of churches that Paul planted, uh, after Paul left, these unscrupulous people uh, with bad doctrine and loud voices would come in and, and would kind of mess the church up. And, and, uh, and so uh, Paul lays out this mission for Titus just five verses into the letter. Paul says, uh, the reason, he's speaking to Titus, the reason I left you in the island of Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished, when Paul planted the church, and appoint elders, church leaders in every town as I directed you. Paul says, I left you there, I sent you there for a reason, uh, that you might put in order what is currently in the midst of chaos in that church, in the island of Crete. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard somebody referred to as a Cretan? Have you ever heard that term? Was it a compliment? Uh, Probably not. Uh, There were secular uh, philosophers, Greek philosophers, who had very, very unkind things to say about the culture on the island of Crete. And, uh, And so Paul says, you know, I want you to go into this church and I want you to straighten things out. I want you to point out heresy. I want you to point out uh, immaturity. I want you to point out sin. I want you to find godly leaders and to put them in place. Uh, and, and I want you to basically build a church that counteracts the negative impact of the culture. You know, I want to say this. Every church, ours included, has a choice. Do we want to be a mirror of the culture or do we want to be medicine for the culture? Do we want the, 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 the worst aspects of the culture to just flow into the church so that we are indistinguishable for our culture? Or do we want God to do a renovating work of grace in us so that we have something healing to offer the culture? Paul says you're a colony of heaven. Right? You're not a carbon copy of the culture. And so starting in the middle of Titus chapter 1, Uh, Paul starts urging Titus, and and this is kind of my paraphrase, but I feel like Paul's telling Titus, I want you to go to deacons meetings, I want you to go to girl group meetings, uh, and I want you to teach this gospel vision in all its fullness. And and Paul kind of spells it out. I want you to go to the old men's class. Once again, this is Larry's paraphrase. But I want you to go to the old men's class and, and tell them not to be so grumpy and tell them that, you know, they've got a job to do and they've got a role to play and the younger men are looking to them and they got to step it up. 
And then I want you to go to the old women's class, and I want you to do something similar. And these young women, uh, these, these young moms need examples, and, and I want you to be a godly example for them. And then going to the young and old class, you know, and talking to the young men and talking to the young women, even those who suffered on the, under the injustice of slavery, even those folks were not let off the hook. Paul says, I want you to live such godly lives that you adorn, that's his word, that you adorn the teaching of the gospel. And if you were to ask Paul the major reason why he's telling Titus to do all these things, uh, what's the major motivation for all these leadership initiatives, for all these uh, you know, grow group lessons and sermons, Paul would say the major motivation is in that first verse we read a moment ago. Titus chapter two, verse 11. The major motivation is grace, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Now, sometimes there's a a, a word in our English Bibles, and it looks kind of ordinary in English, but it's it's much more of an extraordinary word in Greek, and that's true of appeared. Appeared, you know, that's just a real ordinary word, right? Oh, did you notice cherries appeared? On the produce aisle, I guess it's cherry season. Very ordinary word in English. But the Greek word that is translated appeared or appearing uh, is, is the word that gives us our English word epiphany. Uh, for the grace of God epiphanied that offers salvation uh, to all people. Uh, in classical Greek, this word uh, would be used for the breaking of the sun over the horizon. And so in, in the day before uh, digital alarm clocks in the middle of the night, you knew it was dark, but you didn't know if it was 1.30 or if it was 5 a.m. But then the, then the sun came out and this, this you know, showering of light changed the landscape. The same word would, would have been used in that culture to describe an enemy that just appears out of a sudden and, uh, and strikes terror in you. The, an epiphany, in other words, is a sudden, bold showering of light. It's either beautiful or terrifying or maybe a little bit of both. And I think it's really interesting, you know, we had the season of Advent and then we had the 12 days of Christmas. And now, uh, this last Friday, we, with the global church, we enter this season of epiphany. We focus on Jesus, the light of the world, and the shining of light that he brings. Well, thankfully, in our case, the grace of God, uh, when it appears, when it has its epiphany, it's a beautiful thing. Now, for the shepherds uh, in Luke 2, initially it was a terrifying thing when they saw the glory of God shining all around. But they, they began to realize that the grace of God that appears in Bethlehem is a thing of, beautiful, of, of beauty. And even those disciples who saw Jesus hang on the cross and saw another picture, epiphany of grace, it must have been terrifying and sad. And yet, when we see the cross through eyes of faith, we recognize that this epiphany of Jesus taking his, our sin upon himself uh, is, is a beautiful showering of light. And so the Christian life begins when we open ourselves up to that epiphany. The Christian life begins when we accept the gift of grace. The heart of the message that Paul has for Titus and for the churches uh, in the island of Crete is this. Paul tells Titus, I want you to center these people on grace. Grace is the most important thing. I want them to humble themselves to receive grace. You know, sometimes uh, when I'm talking to long-time uh, VRBC members about memorable moments in worship. 
not my bloopers, by the way, of which there are too many. There's a multi-volume uh, DVD of those. But, uh, but, but just those really memorable God moments. One of the moments that uh, longtime VRVCers often share is about our former uh, janitor who passed away several years ago, Mr. Pack. Uh, Mr. Pack was an amazing man. He was a, a military veteran in the South Korean Army and he came to the U.S. and became a, a U.S. citizen. And he was small in stature, uh, but he was pound for pound the strongest man I ever knew. He used to do uh, fingertip push-ups in his 70s. He would carry tables uh, uh, on his back. Uh, and uh, Mr. Pack did not grow up in a, in a Christian environment. And, uh, and in the early years that he served on our staff, we would often talk to him about Jesus. And he would be very polite and very noncommittal. And, uh, but when Mr. Pack got cancer, uh, we began to see an openness uh, to grace that we had never seen before. In fact, it was a beautiful day when right up there, Mr. Pack was baptized. Well, uh, because Mr. Pack was, a, was an older man and was not used to the ways of church, he, he didn't know something that, that all of you know, which is you never, ever, 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 ever interrupt Larry when he's preaching. Right? <laughs> ever, ever, right? Never. Well, one Sunday morning, man, I'm just preaching away up here. And uh, all of a sudden, I see Mr. Pack. He was sitting back there, and he just starts walking down the center aisle. And we had some steps here. And he walks up the steps, and he just kneels right here. And he says, you know, would you pray for me? In broken English. And, I mean, those of you who are here remember. I just... It wasn't in my script, you know. And I I just said, hey, I, I just need to... Pause the sermon for a second, and I prayed a prayer for Mr. Pack, and then he went back to his seat. I think there's a reason why uh, people that have been through so many worship services here, when they think of ones that, that stick out, they think of that one, because it was just a picture of grace. It was just a picture of this man, you know, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, and it was just a picture of Mr. Pack kind of humbling himself, asking for prayer, asking for the grace of Jesus to be with him. Such a beautiful expression, right? Because grace is is truly a front door into an amazing life. Grace is the front door into every good thing we experience with Jesus, and, uh, and I think when we talk about grace, when we sing, as we just did, about amazing grace, often we think most about the front door. We think most about becoming a Christian. We think about the grace that forgives all the sins of our past. But you know what? For Christians, grace is not just the front door. Grace is the whole house in the backyard, too. We don't ever move past grace. We don't say, I experienced grace when I became a Christian. I'm so grateful for that past grace. No, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. And he goes on to describe how grace is impacting his day-to-day living. Grace is never something we leave in the past. Grace is something you and I woke up to this morning. Grace is a daily experience. And, And I think what 
uh, appealed to me and what uh, um, impressed on me most about this passage that I read to you a moment ago is that Paul talks about one of the ongoing functions of grace in our life when he says that grace is actually a teacher. In other words, when grace appears, it not only saves us, but it also continues to teach us what life looks like. One of the older commentators that I looked at, he had a, a great phrase for this. His last name is Aitken. And, and his phrase for this is he says that Christians are enrolled in the school of grace. Don't you love that? We are students in the school of grace. There's this beautiful phrase um, at, at, at the beginning of verse 12. And I want us to just look at the, the beginning of it. Uh, but Paul has just referenced this epiphany of grace. Grace has appeared, brings salvation to all people. And then look at this phrase here in the beginning of verse 12. We'll, we'll, I just want to look at the, the first three words. It, grace, teaches us. Grace teaches. We'll, we'll talk about the rest of the verse in just a moment. But I want to ask, have you ever thought about grace as a teacher? Have you ever thought about what it means to be enrolled in the school of grace? To let Christ be your teacher? <clears throat> a few uh, weeks back, I, I read this uh, short novel by uh, a Catholic writer. I'm, I'm an old English major, and I'd heard a lot about her, and I never read any of her books. Her name's Muriel Spark. And uh, I'd heard about the book. In fact, I'd heard about a movie, which I haven't seen, that's based on the book, old movie. Uh, but I finally read the book, and the book is called The Prime of Miss Jean Brody. The book tells the story of, of Jean Brody, a teacher in her prime, she likes to say, and she's very strong-willed, and uh, she teaches at an upscale girls' school in the 1930s uh, in Edinburgh, Scot Edinburgh, Scotland, and uh, she's a very unconventional teacher. Uh, she's morally off-kilter in a lot of ways. She's, uh, her, her relational romantic life is a mess, and uh, she admires uh, Benito Mussolini. I'm not gonna, it's just, there's a lot of things that are kind of off kilter with her. But she's that kind of teacher, and maybe you've had a teacher like this, that was just magnetic. And, and uh, she would teach her girls not just the core curriculum, but she would also teach them about life and culture and art and romance. And in fact, she was often at war with the school's administration, as a lot of teachers like these are. And, and, and uh, so she would tell her students, Okay, class, open up your history textbooks to page 56 so that if the principal walks by, it'll look like we're reading the textbook. And then they would all have their, class, their books open, and then she would talk about, you know, art or whatever it was that she wanted to talk about. Well, here's one of the interesting things that begins to happen in this book, and that is the students who have Mrs. Ms. Brody begin to take on the personality of their teacher. They they all kind of wear their hats in the same rakish way that Miss Brody has taught them to wear their hats. And, and they actually develop a reputation. They begin to be known, these students begin to be known as the Brody set. It's kind of like they're, they're their own little club, you know, uh, because they've been impacted by Miss Brody. Now, once again, Miss Brody, all kind of problems. But it got me thinking. It got me thinking. What if you and I were so captivated by this gift of grace, by this influence of Jesus, that somehow we began to be known as the, the grace set? 
or the Jesus set. Not in the sense that we all wear our hats the same way and we think we're better than it. No, 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 no. But, but what if the impact of Jesus, our Savior, Lord, and teacher, what if the humbling impact of his grace made such an impression on us that people began to notice those men and women, boys and girls, they, they, there's something different about them. They, they, they are a part of the grace set. And so it got me thinking about this, this school of grace with Jesus as our teacher. What is it like? Well, I think, first of all, from this passage, we would say the school of grace is a place where the students learn to say a very important word, and that word is no. Where students learn to say no. That's the teaching of the first part of verse 12. Grace is a teacher, and grace teaches us to say no. So it teaches us, the grace that has appeared teaches us to say no to what? To ungodliness and worldly passions. To live as the Jesus said is to acknowledge, or as the Revised English Bible says, to renounce all those forces that characterize Cretans, all those forces that characterize the, wor- the worst that the world has to offer. And so maybe when you and I feel pulled unnaturally towards some passion, we, we, we ask the question, is this of God? And if, and if it's not, we ask God in his grace to strengthen us to say no. You know, have you ever had that experience where you're maybe like knee deep in the ocean and there's a strong kind of cross current or undertow happening and you're knee deep so you're okay, but, but you can just feel the sand under your feet Uh, being pulled away by this current. What is it in my life right now where a worldly passion is threatening to to get me caught up in that current? Maybe it's uh, a temptation to to think that money's gonna make you happy, to spend your way to happiness. Maybe it's a, a temptation to exact some kind of subtle revenge on someone who's hurt you, or not so subtle revenge. Maybe, maybe it's a, a way to try to insert yourself into a conversation to make yourself look better than you are, to make someone else look worse than they are. What, what is it? And, and can we ask the question, where's this current coming from? Is this coming from Jesus? Am I being pulled toward, is this the best that God has for me. Is this what it means to be a member of the school of grace? Is this what a humble, gracious person thinks and says and does? When we were uh, in Italy last October, uh, uh, more than one of our museum guides talked about uh, this incredible artist, Michelangelo, and his famous philosophy of sculpture. And I'm gonna guess many of you have heard his philosophy before. I think it's really well illustrated in this sculpture that we actually saw in, uh, in Florence. Uh, but, but Michelangelo believed that the final form of the art was buried in the block of marble. And so the task of the sculptor, the artist, was just to chip away all the stuff that shouldn't be there and to find the true art that resides at the center. Now that sounds a lot easier than I think it is, but, uh, but I wonder, I wonder if when Jesus te- is teaching us to say no, I wonder if, if what he desires to do is just to chip away all those things that mar the beauty of his life in ours. To chip away all of those uh, worldly passions and ungodliness so that the true you and the true me, the 
Christ has created us to be can emerge. The, the school of grace teaches us to say no, but we're not just like negative no people. No, it teaches us to say no because the school of grace is also a place where students learn to say yes. So let's, uh, if you're taking notes, you can write down where students learn to say grace. Sorry, I'm, I'm running through this. But, 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 but I'm getting this from the second part of verse 12, which says, we, it teaches us to say no, but also to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. It teaches us to say um, yes to God in our minds, to ask for the fruit of self-control, the ability to say no and the ability to say yes to what God has for us. It teaches us to say yes in our relationships, upright in our relationships with others. It teaches us to say yes in our souls, in our prayers, living godly lives in the present age. Our minds, our relationships, our souls. And the beautiful thing about this is when we learn to say no to the things that harm us and mar us, when we learn to say yes to what Christ has for us, it, it, it underscores what it really looks like to live in this moment, to live in this present age. When Paul talks about this present age, he's talking about living between two epiphanies, the appearing of Jesus in Bethlehem and the appearing of Jesus at his second coming. And so let's begin to unfold this in verse 14. We're saying yes to the one who gave himself for us, that's Jesus, to redeem us. Redeem means to buy back from slavery. God redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt. Christ on the cross redeemed us from slavery to, to sin and to evil and to death. To redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. There's so much in this verse. Uh, this purify for himself a people that are his very own. In the, in the old King James, it says to purify for himself a peculiar people. Now that may not sound great, right? To be a peculiar people. But I think it's that idea of, of this group of people has been redeemed by Jesus to live a distinctive form of life. So hopefully it's not, those people at VRBC, they are so peculiar. Hopefully it's not that, but, but, but maybe it's more think they must be part of some kind of grace set. They've been forgiven. They've been redeemed. And now they are eager to do what is good. Um, the, 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 the text literally says they are zealots. <laughs> they are zealots to goodness. Now, uh, in that day and time, a zealot, um, you know, carried a, a uh, a hidden knife and uh, committed political assassinations and those kinds of things. We're not that kind of zealot, right? We're not, uh, we're not terrorists. No, we're, we're not fanatics, John Stott says. No, no, we, we are zealous. Uh, we are enthusiasts. That's what he says. We are enthusiasts. We are enthusiastic about doing the good things that God has called us to do. Not in our own strength, but through his grace and through his Holy Spirit. Have you ever known an enthusiast? I wonder how many of you are enthusiasts in one way or another. I've, I've met people who are enthusiasts about scrapbooking. They go to scrapbooking, uh, uh, you know, seminars, and they have all kinds of scrapbooks. I've known people who are enthusiasts about uh, fly fishing. I've never known a fly fisherman who wasn't an enthusiast, and, and I mean, like, likes to tie their own ties, and will just, like, get out in the backyard, and 10 and 2, and 10, and, you know, and, and they're, they're, they, they'll do it for hours because they, they are just so engrossed. They, they want, they're, they're so excited by it. They, they want to master it. 
But what if you and I are grace enthusiasts? I think that's what Paul is saying to Titus. We are eager. Uh, we, are, we are enthusiastic about learning the ways of Jesus, about sharing the forgiveness that he shared with us, about sharing the goodness that he shared with us. A holy eagerness, not reluctant obedience, but a holy eagerness as the Spirit works through us. The school of grace, we learn to say no, we learn to say yes, but I think there's one more part, and that is the school of grace is a place where students dream of graduation. I mentioned epiphany, right? In verse 11, the sudden showering of light, uh, the, the word first appears, this appearing of grace, it's that Bethlehem epiphany when Jesus comes to earth. Uh, but in verse 13, there's another epiphany. While we wait for the blessed hope, the epiphany, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the second epiphany, in the first epiphany, shepherds experienced it, wise men, uh, Joseph, Mary, but just, just a few people. But in the second epiphany, the world will see the glory. And as students of grace, we live in this present age between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming. And, and, and we live in a sense of anticipation of when we will experience the glory of Christ. And, and my little illustration, illustration of it uh, is that we're kind of like high school seniors. And so if you're older than 19, maybe uh, this, this illustration will, uh, will really resonate with you. But, but think about being a high school senior, even if you're younger than 19, but if you know a high school senior, think about that. High school seniors still attend classes, allegedly, uh, still do homework half-heartedly, uh, still write papers, turn in assignments, take tests. But they also pose for senior pictures, they get fitted for cap and gown, they, they make plans, maybe it's uh, college or it's whatever they're gonna do post-graduation. And so in many ways, they live in the present, they're, they're, they're a student at this high school, just like they've been a student at this high school perhaps for several years, but their mind is thinking about graduation. And, and they're almost in two places at once. That's us, church. We, we are in two places at once. We are living in this day, you know, January 8, 2023. We're living in the present moment, but we're also thinking about that coming appearing of Christ. And we don't know when it's going to be, but it's graduation. And we live ready and we live thinking and praying about it. And so with that in mind, I want to ask you, what is it? What is it that Jesus is urging you to say no to today? Maybe even as you've listened to this scripture being read, maybe you've thought about a seed of jealousy that's messing you up. Maybe there's some sort of greed or lust. Maybe pride has emerged in your life. Maybe there's a, a weed of bitterness that you keep watering. You're not supposed to water weeds, but, but, but you keep watering bitterness. And it's drawing you away from God's best. It's, maybe there's self-centeredness. What is it you need to say no to? Maybe you want to write it down in, in code uh, where, or use a cover sheet. So, but maybe you want to just sort of write that down as, as a way of confessing that to God. What do you need to say no to? What is it you need to say yes to? What is Jesus encouraging you to say yes to? 
Maybe it's to salvation. Maybe it's to the front door. Maybe it's to grace. Maybe today you need to say yes to prayer. Maybe you need to say yes again to your wedding vows. Maybe you need to say yes to boldness, to risk, to generosity. I wonder who today needs to say yes to perseverance. We are in the school of grace. We are the grace set. We are led by our gracious Savior. We are led by the one who knew how to say no and knew how to say yes. When the devil tried to distract Jesus in the wilderness, when the devil tried to encourage him to be a different kind of Messiah, when the devil said, I can give you all kind of shortcuts if you just do what I say, Jesus said no. Aren't you glad when Jesus was carrying his cross, he said no to quitting? He said no to retaliation. Aren't you glad that Jesus said no to bitterness? Aren't you glad he prayed, Father, forgive them? Aren't you glad he said yes to prayer? Aren't you glad he said yes to obedience? Aren't you glad you said yes to you and yes to me? Aren't you glad that he saved us? Aren't you glad that he redeemed us? Aren't you glad that his glory will appear again as an epiphany? Let's pray. Lord, we've said it, we've sung it, we've preached it, now we pray it. Thank you for your amazing grace. Grace that is not just the front door. Grace that continues to teach us. Lord, in this moment, May your spirit and your grace and your presence help us to say no so that we might say yes and say it with expectancy. We pray in your name. Amen.